Hey, it's me, Annie, and this is my fifth podcast. So, welcome. The theme of this podcast is Thanksgiving, but I would prefer to play it backwards and call it Giving Thanks. And when I say giving thanks, I'm talking about giving thanks for what you've had in the past, giving thanks for what you have now, and giving thanks in advance for the future. One of the things that I've noticed about Thanksgiving is that everybody wants things to be the way that they remember it. They want the gravy to be the way remembered. They want the mashed potatoes to be the way they remembered. They want the cranberry sauce to be the way they remembered. They want everything to be traditional. And what I will help you with today is understanding that you can create new traditions, new vegan traditions for Thanksgiving that will be more delectable and more memorable than any of the things that you've remembered from past Thanksgivings, and not difficult at all. These are things that you can do pretty easily. But before I start with the food, I want to start with giving thanks for the restaurants that I've experienced the food of that no longer exist. And that's a sad thing, but at the same time, it's also a happy thing because I got the chance to taste these delicious dishes and work at making them again in my own versions for my own family. I remember that there were many different restaurants that I had been to that were among the forefront of vegetarian and vegan restaurants back in the day. And a lot of these are no longer with us. One of which is a restaurant called Open Sesame. Open Sesame was a restaurant that was just outside of Boston. And my mother moved to Massachusetts when my daughter was three years old. And we wound up visiting her a lot there and going to this restaurant with her. And there was a delicious dish that they had there called a doogie bean croquettes. And these were croquettes that they made seasonally based on what kind of vegetables they could get, what kind of grains were the most in season. And sometimes it was uh, millet croquettes with the dookie beans, and sometimes it was brown rice and barley croquettes with the dookie beans. Usually they had a kind of kuzu sauce with them, so it was like a clear sauce. And every time we went there, we always ordered them. And every time we went there, we were always totally delighted. And I remember them very fondly. And I've made my own versions of them because I remember what they tasted like. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this today. I want you to remember the tastes that you like. And then I want you to be able to go home and think about how to reproduce them. Much in the same way as in an earlier podcast I told you about how my father taught me how to cook, I want to try to do that with you folks out there, where you try to remember exactly the way something tasted, break down the recipe, and think of what you can do to compose it so you can reproduce it. And that's what I'll do with one of the recipes I give you today, too. Now, there was another restaurant up there called Five Seasons. Five Seasons was an amazing place, and they always had a rotational menu based on seasonal food. But one thing they always had, which we always ordered, was an incredible green goddess dressing. 
And one of the secrets of the green goddess dressing was the combination of herbs that they used. They always used fresh green herbs. There was usually chives, usually parsley, sometimes tarragon, sometimes dill, many different herbs making up the background flavor of the dressing. We always had it. We always loved it. So that was something delicious to remember about Open Sesame in Five Seasons, was that every time we went, we ordered the Aduki Bean Creek croquettes, we ordered the Green Goddess dressing, because it was what drew us to it. There was a restaurant called Soybean House in Manhattan, in Midtown, that was only there for a matter of years, but I remembered something really delicious that I had there. It was basically a restaurant of all different soybean cuisine and many different things that I'd never tasted before. One of the things called natto that I tasted there that I become immediately enamored of, and I had to seek it out in Japanese stores. Natto is a whole soybean preparation that is created with a kind of fermentation that creates a sticky, stringy bond between the soybeans. It's something where you either love it or you hate it. I would encourage you to try it because it's extremely healthful to you. It's very good for your heart. It's very good for your circulation. It's very good for your blood pressure. It is known to reduce plaque. And there are not many foods that are known to do that. But you actually have to eat it. So it's something that you have to consume and you have to sort of like it to be able to do that. Soybean house is long gone. But I recently had natto at a restaurant called N, which is downtown in New York, which is an incredible place. And they served the natto with my meal of very large soybeans. And it was the tastiest natto I'd ever had. It was even tastier than from the soybean house. It was even tastier from the natto that I've been able to get from Japanese food stores. I would encourage you to try it. There's also a long-gone restaurant that I remember called East West, which actually at one point had several different outposts, but the one I remember the most was in the village. And they used to have awesome vegetable tempura, actually the best I've ever had. Wonderful brown rice came with it. And also I used to get a side order of the best tofu sour cream to go with that. I have become friends over the past few years with the man that was the man at East West Restaurant. And his name is Jim Guido, and I hope to have him on the show someday. But right now, he's living right across the street from me, and I see him almost every day. And we're best buddies. And we talk about back in the day, and we talk about the old restaurants that no longer exist. And there aren't that many people that I can talk to about these places. But Jim Guido is an awesome person. Give him a little shout out. Hey, Jim. Now, going back to the village, the West Village, there was a restaurant called Home. It wasn't strictly vegetarian. It was mostly vegetarian. It wasn't strictly vegan. It was mostly vegan. But you could get great stuff. And one of the things that I was totally hooked on from Home was that when you sat down, they used to put slabs of fresh 
baked whole wheat bread on the table. And they used to serve it with a side spread that they made of a combination of tahini and honey. Now this is a no-brainer. This is not a difficult thing to do. You can mix tahini and honey or tahini and agave or tahini and maple syrup together. I would say the proportions would be about one part of whatever sweetener you chose to about four parts of tahini and mix them together and very, very gradually thin that mixture out with a little bit of water so that it became the consistency that was a good spreading consistency on bread. And it's one of my fondest memories of a lovely little restaurant. And I can make it at home. You can sort of make everything. I make really good tofu sour cream. I can't make the vegetable tempura. I don't do deep frying. But sometimes I get a yen for it. And it's rare to find a place that does it as well as they used to do it at East West. There is a restaurant that I go to now where I get the best tempura I've ever had in my life, but it's not by my choice because this is a restaurant that serves a menu each month. And the name of the restaurant is Kajitsu. Kajitsu, K-A-J-I-T-S-U. If I had to pick my favorite restaurant in this entire world, it would be Kajitsu. There is one chef And he decides what the menu is going to be, and he serves you his choice of menu. And it's a seasonal menu that's based on what he can get that's gorgeous and from the green market and mostly organic. And he puts together a seven-course meal or a five-course meal. I would urge you to get the seven-course meal. And when he does tempura, oh my gosh, it's the best I've ever had in my life. But doesn't always do it, and you have to take the luck of the draw, but every single thing he serves is the most delicious thing I've ever had. Brings tears to my eyes sometimes. I've been known to cry as I was eating things, and made with such care and such thought, and displayed so beautifully. I just love Kajitsu. I treasure each time I go there. It's my favorite place in the world. Now, there's also a place that I would call my favorite place. And the longer you listen to my podcasts out there, the more you'll realize that I have a lot of favorites. So when I say something is my favorite thing to eat, I could say that about a hundred things. If if I say that somebody is my favorite chef, if I say that some place is my favorite place, if I say that a season is my favorite season or a vegetable is my favorite, get used to the fact that I got a lot of favorites. But I know what I like, and I like a lot of things, but really, really much. When I like something, I don't just sort of like it. When I like something, it's my favorite. So, again, right outside of Boston, there is a single chef restaurant that's called Masao's. Masao's is one of the most amazing places in the world. Masao does a thing very similar to what the chef does at Kajitsu, where Masao himself, who's the chef, decides what is going to be cooked that day. It's all presented as a kind of steam table, and you take what you want, and he weighs everything, and you eat in a very, very small spot that he has out front. Gorgeous, 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 gorgeous food. 
simple as can be. Sometimes a two-ingredient dish, sometimes a three-ingredient dish. But brilliant, there's always incredible grain. There's always an incredible green vegetable, incredible orange vegetable. Usually a wonderful soup. Usually a great seaweed. Usually some wonderful tofu or tempeh. Just the most amazing, brilliant selection of the perfect things of the day that he makes. You have to get there really early. Really, really early because usually he's sold out of everything before 6 o'clock. So you have to eat a kind of late lunch, early dinner, New Yorker style, but it's worth it to get there before five and just load up your plate and sit there and get this dreamy look on your face while you're chewing everything because it's lovely, lovely, lovely. His desserts are really good too. Masao's, really cool place. I used to eat at another restaurant that he had previous to that that was more of a menu restaurant. But I sort of like this even better because it's just his vibe. It's just his choice. And you eat what he chooses for you rather than choosing for yourself. And sometimes it's an even better reflection of the day. He's a very wise man. And just watching him cook and just watching him do everything is brilliant. And he keeps track of what everybody has taken on their plates. And when you're finished, you come up to him And he remembers you, and he remembers how much everything will cost. Very inexpensive place. Lovely place. You would love it. I betcha. Now, going back to the back in the day in Boston, there was an Erewhon store. And Erewhon is a pretty prominent brand of natural foods. But there was an actual store that they had, an Erewhon store. And they had something there that nobody's done since that would be an incredible thing for somebody to do. They had something there called tan pops. Tan pops were seitan, wheat gluten, seitan little pops on sticks, like drumsticks. And they used to have them there. And I remember my kids used to go nuts for them. I used to go nuts for them too. And they were savory and they were chewy and they were just totally delectable and the bounciness of the seitan was perfection. Whoever was making them was a total genius. And whoever decided to try making them again now would be a total genius too because they would sell out no matter who carried them. They would sell out every time. So let me think, is there any place else I really, really miss? Well, thinking about Thanksgiving, I miss last Thanksgiving because I really nailed it. (laughs) I love Thanksgiving. I love cooking for Thanksgiving. I have a master list at this point of what to cook first and what to set into the oven first. And I usually make my pies the night before and I let them sort of mellow and I make the wild rice for my stuffing the night before, and I, I I really make a whole kind of orchestrated production of it so that everything is cooked to the perfect degree. Everything gets out on the table hot and savory. Everything is the way that I like it, but also the way my family likes it, because it's tradition, and nobody wants the menu to change. One of the things that has changed about the menu, speaking of seitan before with those tan pops, is that my son is a master seitan maker. And so 
every year now, for the past two years, we have had seitan besides the tofu turkey that I make from scratch. And so it's sort of like white meat being the tofu turkey and dark meat being the seitan. It's really, really cool on a platter. And we coordinate that so it looks awesome when we bring it out to the table. That's a really cool thing. But what I wanted to start you out with today was I wanted to start you out with gravy. Now, gravy is something that's pretty mystifying to people no matter what their diets are. It's one of the things that people seem to think is very difficult to do. Or they take ridiculous shortcuts and they plan to do as little as possible and still expect to get the best results. And you can't do that with gravy. You have to build a gravy. In the same way as when I did my show about my dad's spaghetti sauce, which has now become my spaghetti sauce, it's a build. You have to layer it to get the kind of depth of flavor that you want. And so today I'm going to talk to you about how I do my gravy. Because if your gravy is right, your meal is tight. And this is the way I go. I do go either with mushroom gravy or I go with onion gravy. Now, my favorite is really mushroom gravy. So I'm going to give you the recipe for that. If you don't like mushrooms or want to avoid them for some reason, you can do an onion gravy. It's going to be just as good. And basically, it's going to be the same routine that I explained to you about the way I build my gravy, whether it's mushroom or onion. The foundation of the gravy is a layering of herbs. And what I've done is every summer I collect a whole bunch of pots of organic herbs and I put them out in containers in my garden. And I'm really doing it for the fall season. I'm doing it for Thanksgiving and Christmas so that I have these herbs growing and I can use them fresh in the fall. And I have sage and I have rosemary and I have incredible thyme. All of them are growing out in my backyard right now. I can see them from my kitchen window. And these are the foundation of my gravy. What I do to start is I talk to my kids, who are even more traditional than I am, and I ask them, is it shiitake mushroom gravy this year, or is it button mushroom gravy this year? And it's sort of a collective decision. So whichever mushroom it is, that's what I start with. And I bring some neutral oil to a medium heat in a wide frying pan. I like to do it in a wide frying pan because I keep on cooking it down and I want a lot of surface to come in contact with the gravy. So I put the oil in the pan, heat it to medium heat, and add sliced mushrooms. Now the thing with mushrooms is... You can use a lot more than you think because they really cook down. But I have a method whereby I cook them to get as much flavor as possible. Something that is called in Japanese cuisine, umame. The mushrooms provide umame and the soy sauce that I will add to them to deglaze the pan will also provide umame. What is umame? Umame is a, the fifth taste. And it's a kind of savory taste that can only be described as delectable or delicious or um, something that makes you want to eat more and more and more. So as a friend of mine, Dickie, says, it's moresome. It tastes moresome. In other words, you want more of some of whatever you ate. So you start out with the mushrooms. You start out sautéing them. Don't sauté them 
too high heat, but you want them to start giving up their water. And then as soon as they start doing that, and as soon as they start deflating in the pan, you want to make sure that they come in contact with the pan to the point where they start searing a bit. This is really important. You want to get that sear on the mushrooms. That sear is the caramelization of the sugars in the mushroom. Once that started to happen and you see that the mushrooms are browning, then you sprinkle tamari or shoyu over the mushrooms and you'll hear a big hiss as it hits the pan and you'll start doing what's called deglazing the pan. You'll rub around with a a wooden spoon, scraping the bottom of the pan so that you get all the good bits up. And the soy sauce or the shoyu, the tamari, will be the vehicle for all those good bits to start scraping up from the bottom of the pan. Those are your flavor bits. You must treasure your flavor bits. So the next thing that you will do once that starts uh, getting back to a dry state in the pan again, is that you'll add your herbs. And I use chopped rosemary, chopped thyme, and chopped sage. Those are my herbs of choice. So I use the fresh herbs. Now, if you don't have access to fresh herbs, uh, first of all, I'd be surprised because pretty much every market carries them around this season. But If you don't have access to them, yeah, you can do dried herbs, but I would still do those same herbs. One other thing that I would add that's my little ace in the hole secret is something called Bell's Poultry Seasoning or Bell's Seasoning. It comes in a wonderful old-timey box with a turkey on the front, and sometimes I think I just buy it for the box. I have a thing about poultry. I, I love poultry pictures. I don't eat poultry, but I love to look at pictures of poultry. In fact, I have a picture of a rooster downstairs that I found in Edible magazine. And I want to frame it because I think he's just the most beautiful rooster I've ever seen in my life. I have this thing about birds in general. I just love them. They, They speak to me. Anyway, getting back to the gravy here. So I sprinkle it over with the bell seasoning after I've added all of my fresh herbs that I've cut up, and I start stirring that around with the mushrooms in the pan. And if I notice the stuff is sticking a little bit, I'll splash it with a little bit more tamari, and I will add some unchicken broth or no chicken broth. And this ingredient could also be replaced by your personal stock combination. If you are used to making vegetable stock for yourself, of course, use your own vegetable stock. I tend to use the no chicken broth. I like it and it's convenient for me. So I would add some of that and I would allow that to simmer down until there was nothing left, but just the residue of the herbs and the mushrooms. Then I would do that again. I would add the no chicken broth or your personal stock and I would add it to come up halfway at the side of the pan and then I would cook it down, simmer it down until there was nothing left. All right, so now you've done that and you've started building an enormous amount of flavor and background flavor in that sauce, that gravy. And you want to decide how much gravy you want to make. Now, The thickener for this gravy is going to be 
brown rice flour. Arrowhead Mills makes a really good brown rice flour. One tablespoon of brown rice flour will thicken one cup of liquid. Decide how many people you're feeding. Decide how many cups of gravy you want to make. And measure out that amount of your stock or the no chicken broth. And put that in the pan. And then take about a quarter of a cup of your stock or the no chicken broth. And add the equivalent of tablespoons of brown rice flour to it that would thicken the amount of gravy you want to make. So let's say you're making four cups of gravy. You would add four tablespoons of brown rice flour to that extra reserved side quarter cup of stock. And you would stir that around until it was completely smooth. And then once you would put the the bulk of the liquid making up this gravy to a simmer, you would slowly stir it in. I use a whisk for this because I like to, again, scrape the bottom of the pan, and a whisk is good for that, but I also like to make sure it's completely homogenized. And when you first do it, it's going to turn sort of whitish. Keep on scraping and stirring. And from that point, what you want to do is you want to keep your eye on the sauce. Keep your eye on the gravy. Always keep your eye on gravy when you make it. You don't want it to lump up. So if you look at it every few minutes and stir it with a wooden spoon or whisk it with a whisk, it's a smart idea. Another thing that I do with my gravy is that I add a little bit of mirin at the end. Mirin is sweet rice cooking wine. Eden makes a really good one. And I just want that tiny bit of sweetness. So I would say, let's say you're making the four cups. I would say you would add a teaspoon of mirin in the end. A very, very small amount. What it does is it makes it shiny. I like a shiny gravy. So, you keep on stirring it and cooking it and stirring it and cooking it until it gets to the consistency that you want. And then you put a lid on it and you put it on the back burner. When it's on the back burner, what it's going to be doing is off the heat, it's going to be putting all of its flavors together. And when it puts all of its flavors together, it's going to start making itself. Now, I like to give my gravy time to make itself. So it's off the burner, has the lid on, and it's just sitting, talking to itself. An hour or two later, after I've made other dishes for the Thanksgiving meal, I'll bring the gravy back out again. And I'll taste it. And I'll see what I want to do. Do I want to re-enter any of the herbs? Is there anything that it needs? Does it need more bell seasoning? Does it need more tamari? Could it like a little hit of herbamore? Would it like a little bit of black pepper? Let it speak to you. Let it talk to you. Let it tell you what it wants. Is it too thick? Does it need to be thinned? Is it too thin? Do you need to cook it down more? Let it talk to you. Work with it. Make it your own. There's nothing better than good gravy. Except for one of the things that I really like to put good gravy on top of. I like to put good gravy on top of mashed potatoes. I love mashed potatoes. And here's my theory about mashed potatoes. I like to use dry potatoes when I make mashed potatoes. I like to use russets or I like to use Yukon Golds or uh, 
some kind of white potato that's going to have a dry texture, not a waxy potato. And I know people that make mashed potatoes with waxy potatoes. I don't like the consistency of that. I like a real dry, flaky potato. So usually for Thanksgiving, I use russet potatoes. And the way that I start them to cook them is, and you can decide about this yourself. You can decide skin on, skin off. I tend to think that I like it better if I do it skin off. It's just me, but you can decide to do whatever you want to do. So what I do is I peel and I cut the potatoes in big chunks and I put them in cold water to cover. Always use cold water to start your potatoes for mashed potatoes. And I season the water with herbivore sea salt. And I bring that to a simmer and I keep it at a simmer until I can easily pierce a piece of potato with a knife. And then I drain it immediately. Now here's the secret. If you've ever had trouble with your mashed potatoes not being the right consistency, it could be that you've added cold liquid to them. Never do that. Only add hot liquid to them. So once my mashed potatoes are finished, I have them in the drainer that I've decided to drain them in. And while they're draining, I bring soy milk, unsweetened of course, unsweetened soy milk, and a drizzle of either organic canola or organic sunflower oil. I bring that in the same pot that the potatoes have been cooking in to a heat, not to boil it, not to simmer it, but just to a heat where you can see that there's a little bit of... um, mist coming off the top of it. And then I add the potatoes back into that and I mash them in that. I have a wonderful potato masher that's like cross-hatched stainless steel. It's really wonderful with a really strong wooden handle. But I'm sure you have a good potato masher. If not, invest in one. It's a really good investment. You can use it for a lot of different things. So I mash up my potatoes. I see if I need to add any more liquid. If I do, I bring the liquid to a heat before I add it in. Again, you don't want to ever add cold liquid. Why? It makes it pasty if you do that. Why does it make it pasty? Because it separates out the starch and it makes it gummy. So don't do that. Remember, always hot liquid into mashed potatoes. So once I have them the consistency that I really enjoy... I add a couple of knobs of Earth Balance Organic Buttery Spread, and that gives it that buttery flavor that we all adore. And I mix that around with a wooden spoon, and I put a lid on, and I let that sit at the back of the stove to stay warm. The best mashed potatoes ever. All right. I think I've done enough to give you ideas to start your Thanksgiving, but what I would urge you to do is I would urge you to practice your gravy. Start practicing it now. Get it to be the way you want it to be. Memorize what you've done. Really take notes. And then by the time Thanksgiving comes, oh my goodness, people are going to rave about it. People are going to wish you made twice as much. And mashed potatoes, they're always good. Might as well practice those too. And it's a great vehicle for your gravy. So you can do your gravy tests on top of your mashed potato tests. What could be better than that? I can't imagine. (sighs) 
I'm looking forward to cooking. So goodbye, everyone. I hope I've cheered you up. I hope I've given you ideas. And we'll be talking really soon about more Thanksgiving recipes. Love you all. Bye-bye.